Hello, readers and dyslexia advocates around the world. Welcome to The Read Podcast, where we connect you with researchers, thought leaders, and educators on topics in reading and child development. Read is produced by the Windward Institute. I'm your host, Danielle Scarano, and during October, the Windward Institute and the Windward School are putting dyslexia in focus in recognition of Dyslexia Awareness Month. This month on Read, you will hear from four past Read experts on insights specific to dyslexia and topics related to screening and identification, education and intervention, and advocacy. This Read episode features Dr. Marianne Wolf. You can tune into the full conversation with Dr. Wolf during episode 21 by visiting readpodcast.org or checking out the episode on your favorite podcast platform. In this clip, I asked Dr. Wolf about the reading brain and dyslexia and its implications for literacy, education, and social justice. As we look at literacy and the reading brain, what do you think people often have difficulty conceptualizing about reading? What seems to be these main misconceptions and myths about the way we read? Good question, Daniela, because I remember when I wrote my first book for the public, Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain, I realized that most people simply take reading for granted. They have no conceptualization that this represents one of the most complex uses of the most cortical, subcortical regions in the brain. They don't have a clue. They just think it's something that comes naturally. So the first sentence of that book still is, is on, is on the top of my mind when I'm, you know, approaching an audience because I have to dispel that myth that reading is natural. And the first line is, we were never born to read. And that's what I have to help every audience who isn't uh, involved in the study of reading understand this is a profoundly, almost miraculous achievement because the brain wasn't set up to do that. Mm-hmm. And therefore, I have to almost break down the idea that you can, that anybody can do it. And the study of dyslexia has helped me help others realize the complexities of reading are why some of us learn differently. And so the second myth involves dyslexia itself. I'm always confronted with people who say, oh, we can't use the word (laughs) in our district or in our state that we don't talk about dyslexia. And I'll say, why? And then there will be those who say, well, because a lot of the people who are our leaders don't believe it really exists. Or they'll say, well, if you can't define it, you know, just, just call it a reading obstacle or a reading challenge or all these nice little words. The reality is that the study of dyslexia helps reveal the complexity of reading itself. And I look at dyslexia as a continuum of different possible areas of impediment, weakness in development that are usually physiologically, genetically in place for that child well before they ever are entering the kindergarten door. This is the genetic aspect. But I need people to realize that brain is beautiful. 
that brain was here before we ever as a species learned to read. So the second myth that I have to dispel is that dyslexia doesn't exist. But then the third part of it is to think that that means that child or that individual, it doesn't have not only average to, if you will, even superior intelligence, that brain was meant to be here. Mm -hmm. And so I have to dispel a lot of different thoughts that people come to their schools with, if they're parents. I have to talk to teachers who've never been actually exposed to the idea that the dyslexia brain was here and is an incredible part of the species, if you will, evolution before reading was invented. That brain is necessary because it does things differently from linear types like me. And I tell many an audience, the species would not exist if everybody's brain was like mine. We wouldn't get out of the savannas. I couldn't find my way, you know? I mean, this is a very linear brain. It's It luckily has some creativity within it, but that creative brain, especially in many of our individuals with dyslexia, those, those abilities to think in different ways, to see patterns, to see outside the box, that's an unbelievable necessity for a species. And that brain teaches us how, not just how complex reading is, but how it can break down in different ways. But learning that helps us realize, oh, all those parts are necessary for all children to be exposed to or taught to with, you know, with this complexity in mind. So the three myths are about what reading is, what dyslexia is, and that dyslexia can, the, the study, the research, and the teaching, what we learned about teaching dyslexia has insights for everyone. So I'd call those the three myths. Mm-hmm. It's so important to identify the dyslexic brain as, as having these beautiful, creative aspects to it and strengths, and also recognizing the way that people with dyslexia need to be taught to read because when you look at the research in reading education and reading instruction, there is a research-based way to teach reading. So when you talk to classroom teachers about reading education and reading instruction, what are those key elements that you're saying beyond just the myths that reading must be taught, that it's not something that's natural, that dyslexia exists, and that there is a neurobiological basis of it. What do you say to a teacher that's teaching reading in the classroom the next day? So one of the things that I've learned is that the way we are taught to teach reading makes a lasting imprint upon that person. And that many of our teachers who do not have a background in the science of reading or the reading brain have the sense that to go in a different path from the way they're taught is being disloyal to wonderful teachers who taught them a particular method. And so I have to dispel another, if you will, myth that there is one and only one way to teach reading for everyone. And this involves absolutely everyone. When we look at what the evidence shows us, 
we can say with great certainty that children who have difficulties learn best or learn better with principles that we would call the foundational decoding skills that help open up the alphabetic principle to that child and that practice the letter sound correspondence rules that are often so difficult for children and individuals with dyslexia. So that is a must. Hmm. But what happens is that if a if a teacher has been taught what are often called whole language or balanced literacy approaches, they look at those decoding skills, the alphabetic principle practice, as something that's antithetical to how they were taught and that they feel disloyal. And one of the things that I must impress upon all teachers, whatever ways that they were taught, you can expand your knowledge. And that that's what teaching should be about is the expansion of ever better ways of learning how to teach different individuals. And so even though I am even have been called these wonderful names about, you know, the ability to teach the science of reading, you know, phrases like that. I always am talking about poetry, too. And I wrote an article for the captain called The Science and Poetry of Learning and Teaching to Read. And it's an article I would like everyone to have because it's it's accessible to everyone and it's inclusive of everyone. People have to understand we do have a science and that it is informed by the reading brain. But that is not excluding the work on stories and authentic literature and the love of words. In fact, our very research within that science shows us that the more we know about those words, the better we read them, the faster we read them, and the more elaborative our understanding of them is. So when I talk about the science of reading or the neuroscience of reading or the reading brain, I try to do it in such a way that no one feels excluded, but that we all have something to learn. And so in California, I think there's a, a group of, of teachers who are so dedicated, but who believe that the science of reading excludes them because they see it as a single, almost unidimensional emphasis on phonics. And they believe that the unidimensional view, if you will, should be on stories and the induction of of the alphabetic principle. And then there are those who really in the balanced literacy group who believe that if you put a little phonics and, and, and a lot of stories together, that you will have the perfect balance combination. That too, I have to say, is, is, is not the best that we can do. And so my hope is that we literally use terms like comprehensive, systematic, explicit teaching on all of the component processes that are involved in reading. And that has an expanded version of foundational skills. And it has an absolute inclusion of the world of story and literature and, and vocabulary within it. So that we are the we who study the reading brain know, we know that all those areas are being activated, but we must teach those foundational skills 
to a, if you will, to their automatic levels so that we can add all of this. So we're not excluding, we're gradually including and incorporating it, but we have to be automatic enough to become ever more elaborative with all this knowledge. So it's a, it's a complex story at the base because the reading brain is complex, but at another level, it just breaks down this polarization that has gone on for far too long among teachers. We must come together and realize that together we will be better than if we are polarized. I like the way that you said that. As you were speaking, I kept thinking of the word integration. It was been on some recent podcasts I was listening to. Dr. Brene Brown talks about integration. She says the integration in one way is to bring whole and not whole in a whole language, but whole and and bringing everything together. And when you talk about how we can build this love of reading and story and literature, I see that you're bringing in the science of reading as a vehicle, yes, a vehicle to building this love of language and this love of reading and literature. I appreciate you breaking down those elements and how we teach our children to read, because as you said, truthfully, every child with dyslexia needs this form of reading instruction and it benefits all students. So I want to, f- to switch to social justice and I want you to help me understand how you conceptualize the intersection between literacy and social justice. Well, I, I'm so glad that you're asking this question. And I'm also so glad that you began our time together in this interview with kind of autobiography of the idea that reading is a basic human right because the autobiographical aspect is that I saw the effects of what being non-literate meant in a village who couldn't go outside the, the circumference of their very tiny world because they couldn't read and they desperately wanted their children to do so. It was an experience that was not just about social justice. It was about human development itself. And I recognize that teaching, and that had always been a goal of mine, but I I meant to teach poetry to graduate students. Instead, I saw that teaching begins with a child's first experience or you never reach graduate school, or you never reach a community college, or you never reach any of the goals that those wonderful sacrificing parents of yours have for you. And that the base education is literacy. I do not short numeracy. I do not short all the other topics that go into the educated brain, but it began to be extremely clear That without literacy, nothing else can be built upon that platform of learning for the child. And so from then on till now, I am committed to using my knowledge to ensure that children, prisoners, families in places where there are no schools and there are no teachers. As you know, I think I did uh, some of the work in Africa on this, in places where there were no schools. I want to be sure 
that I put my little tiny tin cup of knowledge into play under the great cascade of human efforts to bring human development to its next stage for as many children and individuals as possible. That's for me what social justice and literacy is all about. Bringing everybody has a little tin cup and we have our store of knowledge. And let's, when we put all those tin cups together, we have a gigantic waterfall of effort to help all children and individuals. Thank you for listening to this Dyslexia in Focus clip on the Read Podcast with Dr. Marianne Wolf. You can listen to all past Read episodes, including episode 21 with Dr. Wolf at readpodcast.org. This month, the Windward Institute invites you to engage with us about Dyslexia in Focus on social media or by visiting our website, thewindwardschool.org slash WI. Our website also features upcoming professional development opportunities and events like our upcoming free community lecture on October 24th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Psychological Components of Reading Disabilities with Dr. Amy Margolis from Columbia University. Remember, readers, that advocacy extends beyond Dyslexia Awareness Month, and stay tuned for more learning and advocacy efforts throughout the year. It is my hope that our community continues to educate and empower others for students with dyslexia around the world. See you next time, readers.